I'm Rabbi Stephen Carribbon. I'm the Rabbi Emeritus here at the lovely Kehillat Israel Reconstructionist Congregation of Pacific Palisades. And uh, this is the Friday morning Torah study. We are almost at the very end of Genesis. There's so much in this week's Torah portion that hits us, you know, in our guts. This week's Torah portion is Vayigash. It begins, it's Genesis 44, verse 18. If you happen to be sitting here with one of these fabulous green Torah women's commentaries, it's on page 261. If you have some other commentary, you're on your own. You have to find Genesis 44, 18. Those of us who were here last week will remember that we're in the middle of the great personal, emotional, family drama of Joseph and his brothers, that uh, story, which is sort of the longest sort of drama, in a sense, in, in certainly in Genesis and the Torah. We have the longest single speech in the Torah, in this week's Torah portion, of uh, Judah in just a moment talking to, um, to Joseph, pleading with Joseph to spare the life of his brother Benjamin. It's the longest single speech. It's an entire chapter of just essentially his speech. And we have probably the most uh, profound emotional moment, at least one of the most profound emotional moments in the entire Torah in this week's Torah portion. And so naturally it has to do with families. And this must be mine. Families and... um, And the challenge of forgiveness and reconciliation. I know none of you ever have to deal with family issues <laughs> or issues of forgiveness and reconciliation in your lives, but evidently in biblical times it was a big deal. <clears throat> and um, the reason that we keep coming back to Torah study, did you bring your violin? No. All right. Um, <clears throat> the reason we keep coming back to Torah study. It is because miraculously we're always relating personally to these stories from thousands of years ago as if they're about our own family more poignantly as if they're about us sorry last week I mentioned that my reading of Torah my study of Torah my commentaries of Torah, one of which you have from my brilliant book, A Year with Mordecai Kaplan, which you can, thank you, which uh, Sheila reminded me, I'm doing an evening on this book at the AJU, the American Jewish University, is that what it's called? Yeah. Uh, on January 15th. I'm not sure what I'm doing with my book on January 15th at the AJU, but, but I'm doing something. Um, and it might be actually a dialogue might be an evening that's dialogue with the head of the rabbinic program. I'm not sure, but either way, I'll be there talking about my book. <clears throat> Maybe selling a few, I guess. I'm think, I guess that's what you're supposed to do. I guess I have to get some of those to sell, don't I? I don't know. Will there be PR from here? Probably not. <clears throat> I'll, you, got, you now have it. January 15th, 7.30, the AJU. That's the PR. We don't... We're not big on that. Um, I mean, in any event, um, and and as anybody who has actually looked at <clears throat> this Torah commentary book that I wrote, uh, allegedly about Mordecai Kaplan, 
but mostly about me, evidently, when I look at it. Um, that's how I read Torah. I read Torah through the lens of, of, uh, of my own life, uh, and, and I see Torah as um, a kind of um, dream interpretation challenge that, um, that when we have dreams, we know that uh, all the parts of the dream are us, because after all, we're the ones dreaming. So it's all in our consciousness, in our mind, in our, uh, in our thoughts. And so one of the ways uh, the, the uh, <clears throat> rabbis of the Talmud, of course, say, I mentioned it last week because we were talking about dreams because this is Joseph the dreamer and everything. And this week <clears throat> is one of those times, last week and this week, when Joseph's dreams, quote, come true, of course, of his brothers, you know, prostrating themselves in front of him and begging and with his dreams as a youth are now coming to fruition. Uh, and in the Talmud, the rabbis say, <clears throat> according to the interpretation is the dream. The dream is the dream. It means what you say it means, essentially, because it's yours. And that you're every part of the dream, the good parts, the bad parts, the scary parts, you know, the inspirational parts, the silly parts, whatever. It's all you. And that the way to interpret, the best way perhaps to interpret the dream is to wrestle with how you see yourself in all those different parts and how it feels to be all those different parts. And I often see Torah that way. That is, how does it feel to me were I to be Joseph, were I to be Judah, were I to be his brothers, were I to be the people whom in this week's Torah portion he enslaves as indentured servants to the, you know, the entire country. Um, and uh, it's interesting that um, the rabbis, the medieval rabbis, in their wrestling with this story, they're not all laudatory about Joseph and his brilliance. You know, Joseph was obviously smart and clever and talented and um, manages to go from the lowest to the highest in a matter of moments in the Torah, from being in prison for something, of course, he didn't do, to being second in command of the entire country, smart enough to interpret the Pharaoh's dreams, and then to engineer the the rescue of the entire country, and in fact, the entire region, recognizing as people today in the modern world, uh, economists often talk about cycles of the economy, and they're watching the the stock market and going, well, it can't last forever because it's obviously this is the history and this is what happens to the economy. And Joseph was one of those people who early on recognized, you know, this is the way life is. Many of you have heard me say my number one metaphor for life is um, an EKG. And if not, you just heard me say it, an EKG. If they plug you in, you know, they're checking your heart, they put all these things and then they, a little screen and this is what it does. This is your life, right? This is living. This is not living. This is living. People have this fantasy, if my life were only like this, if your life were like this, you wouldn't be living. This is what your life is like. All of us, in every aspect of our Some of us, our lives are like this. Some of us, our lives are like this. But everybody's up and down and up, and this is the nature of life. It's the nature of life. In every aspect of our, 
of our relationships, of our health, of our professions, of everything. It's up and down and up and down. And when you see life that way, you recognize that uh, appreciate the ups because some down is going to happen because that's the way it is. And when you get down, take a breath and have faith that it's going to go back up again. You know, and what can I do to bring it back up? Because this is what it's going to go. So Joseph sort of recognized that and said, okay, it's going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. So let's, <clears throat> let's put aside things in the seven years of plenty so we have food in seven years of famine. Smart, reasonable. You know, and then he manages to, because of his wisdom, not only rescue the country, but save the Jewish people. Be responsible for, which is what he's about to say, if we ever get to the text, he's about to say, you know, I'm, this is how I ended up here. The reason I'm here was so that I would be in a position to rescue my family as they're starving because there's a famine when they came down. And as a result, bring them all here. And as a result, grow the Jewish people who are the descendants of his, him and his brother, brothers, Right? all sounds great some of the medieval commentators look at this story and go yeah but and the but part is what's the long term impact of Joseph in this week's Torah portion essentially forcing all of the um, citizens of the country to cede their land, their possessions to Pharaoh, to the state, giving it all to the state, and being indentured servants for generations as a result. And when you look at the enslavement of the world today, if you look at the uh, Jewish organizations that are involved with fighting against enslavements of all kinds, economic enslavements and things like that in the world, they will tell you it's this kind of poverty that is the number one problem of enslavement in the world. And then there's all the other kinds of enslavement, of sexual enslavement and selling people and everything else. But that is the person who ends up having to take a loan because they, they're in crisis and then all of the things that go along with that loan that balloon keep them forever indebted and they never get out of it. And that's passed on to the next generation and the next. And in countries all over the world, that's the reality. And here's the model. This is the model. And in fact, there are even those medieval Jewish commentators, you just have to trust me because I didn't bring it, but <clears throat> who say our enslavement, our, the Jewish people's enslavement, which is going to happen in two Torah portions when we start the book of Exodus and you know the opening line of the book of Exodus is a new king arose over Egypt who knew not Joseph we all remember that which happens in every generation a new king who knew not Joseph the fact of the matter is there are those <clears throat> rabbis and the medieval commentators who suggest that the reason for our enslavement for that pharaoh saying hmm, there's this people I don't trust them and then thereby enslaved us for hundreds of years is retribution for what Joseph, the most important of those people that Pharaoh ultimately enslaves, did to the Egyptians. 
figured out how to get them all enslaved to the then Pharaoh. Just a thought about some of the ethical challenges that we face, you know, that we sort of ignore. Meanwhile, back to this story. Um, Here we are. Joseph has just uh, brought his brothers back. He knows that they're his brothers. They don't know that he's Joseph. And, of course, we know he's planted this cup in the uh, food sack of Benjamin and therefore says to his brothers, this person who stole this is going to be thrown into prison and the rest of you can leave. And now we have this story of Judah. Why Judah? Some of you know. Why is it Judah who steps forward here of all the brothers? Any idea? He's the other son of Rachel. No, Benjamin is the other son. Benjamin, who he is keeping. But Judah, why Judah? Why is it Judah who steps up? First of all, he's not the oldest. The oldest is Reuben. Um, Why is it Judah? The reason it's Judah is because when you go back, it's Judah who was the one who said, let's sell him. It was Judah who said, okay, this was the good news, bad news. First they said, let's just kill him. You know, when they were jealous, we're going to kill him, then dad will love us. And of course, just one reminder again, What's the whole reason that, jo- that allegedly they so- were going to kill Joseph and they, were- they ended up selling him into slavery? Why do they do that? Jealousy. Jealousy. His father's, their father's love. They didn't feel loved. They didn't feel loved. It's like literally that simple. You know, daddy loves Joseph more than he loves us. So the, the solution is kill Joseph. <laughs> That'll fix it. <clears throat> Or sell them into slavery. That'll fix it. You know, the reality is, it's all about love. How many stories are all about love? Most of them. Every story is all about love. Every story is all about love. It's all about love. It's all about the human beings, the individual's need for acknowledgement, acceptance, love. And what we do as a result of not having it what we tell ourselves, stories we tell ourselves that motivate us to act one way or another, to get it. How do we get it? Some people buy it. Some people kill for it, literally. Literally. Kill for it. Enslave for it. And this whole story is all about, really, ultimately, about love in many ways. And um, we'll get to that in a minute also at the end with Jacob. So in the meantime, it's Judah who was the one who said, let's sell him into slavery and sold him into slavery. It's Judah who, in the last chapter, when Joseph said, don't come back again unless you bring Benjamin, who pleads with Jacob, their father, and says, we can't, when Jacob says, go back and get some more food because they're all starving. Because they're who says, it's Judah, who says to Jacob, we can't go unless we bring Benjamin. And Jacob says, reinforcing the lack of love that they felt, my wife had two sons. One of them died, was torn by beasts, and now you're going to take the other one away? He's talking to his sons. My wife had, he's got 12 sons. My wife had two sons. 
<clears throat> Talk about love. This all started with Jacob falling in love with Rachel. Working for seven years to marry her, and then what? Another seven. Another seven. Then, switch. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Last week we talked about masks. He ends up marrying Leah, who is also never loved. He only loves Rachel. We have Leah, we have Rachel, we have their two servants, all having given birth to kids for Jacob. All of them, one version or another, because people are seeking love. <clears throat> and ultimately, Jacob's perception is that it, the love of his life, who died, Rachel, had two children. Those are the two most important children. And it's Judah who says, I promise I, I will stand in place of Benjamin. I will be responsible for him. I promise you, Dad, no matter what happens, I'll bring him back to you. No matter what. My life for his life. He promises. So here he's fulfilling his promise. This is what he's doing. So, someone want to read this out loud? I'll read it out loud because I realize I'm the one with the microphone. Well, not for you, but for those thousands of people who are going to tune in and go, where's Rabbi Amy? <laughs> Judah now approached him and said, I got to stop doing that. By your leave, my Lord, please give your servant a hearing and do not let your anger flare up at your servant for you are like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have an aged father and a young boy of his old age whose full brother is dead. He alone was left of his mother and so his father loves him all the more. Really, it's all the more than us. You then said to your servants, bring him down here to me and let me lay my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father. If he leaves his father, he will die. Then you said, if your youngest brother doesn't come down with you, you'll never see my face again. So when we went up to your servant, my father, we related to him my Lord's words. And when our father said, go back and buy us food, we said, we can't. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go down, for we won't be allowed to see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And your servant, my father, knows how many times it's your servant, my father, your servant, my father. So much of this is about who's serving whom and the fulfillment of Joseph's dream that everyone's going to be serving him. You know that the two, uh, that of the two my wife bore me, my wife as if he only had one wife, one has gone from my side, and I said, surely he's been ripped to shreds. I haven't seen him to this day. If you take this one too from me and some calamity falls, you will lower my gray head in woe to Sheol. <clears throat> uh, for those who <clears throat> don't know much about the biblical attitude about afterlife, there is very little biblical attitude about afterlife, which is the reason you don't know a lot about the biblical attitude about the afterlife. It's hardly ever mentioned. This is one of the times. <clears throat> and um, the only Torah mentions, really, of the afterlife are mentions like this. There's this place called Sheol, where we go <clears throat> somewhere it's obviously down, down to Sheol, because that's the phrase that's used several times in the Torah, that along with being gathered to one's kin. 
So the notion is, wherever Shoal is, that's where our kin are hanging out, and <clears throat> ultimately we'll be gathered to our kin, maybe metaphorically, maybe literally, because Torah text being the terse text that it is, there's no explanations built into the Torah. It just says what it says. So there's really no way of knowing exactly what the the original biblical attitude about what happens after you die is. There's only speculation. But surely the rabbis have made a lot of comments. Yeah, yeah, there's a million comments. There's uh, one of my favorite books about the afterlife. It's about this thick. That's very thick for those who can't see. And it's called Jewish Views of the Afterlife. It's like this. People often ask me, because I'm a rabbi, so, um, you know, one of the rabbi questions people have is, what's the Jewish attitude about the afterlife? Maybe we'll do another series on that. What do Jews, because you can talk about it forever, what do Jews believe about life after death? And of course, those of us who are Jewish know there's no one thing that Jews believe about almost anything. <laughs> there's all kinds of things that Jews believe about everything. So there's always a range. So, and because for the last several thousand years, up until 1948, um, we were always a minority in a majority culture, what we did was we had adapted and adopted the prevailing views of every majority culture in which we lived and made some Jewish version of them. So in that very thick book, Jewish Views of the Afterlife, there's a whole section on uh, Jews of the Middle Ages in Europe. Not a fun time. Jews in the Middle Ages in Europe. One of the things that wasn't fun about that time was that sort of Dante version of hell was everybody's version of what happens after you die and became the Jewish version in many, to a great extent as well. There's all kinds of rabbinic and other texts about from the Middle Ages with very deep, profound, detailed, horrific descriptions of what happens to you when you die, of how all of the sins that you have committed in your life get punished, you know, I want to go into them, but things about all the different parts of your body that get torn up and burned and things in some horrible afterlife um, as a result of transgressions that you did on this earth. Is the Jewish this is the Jewish version of the Christian version of hell. Um, yeah, there's a Jewish version of the Christian version of hell. It was not very popular, obviously, and quickly went away, and is a minority opinion, obviously, in Jewish life, and um, I would never say that, that, that that's, that's what Jews believe, quote, but we have believed all kinds of things. And because um, it's one of those things that most people have not experienced. And so they, it's all speculation what happens. In any event. Everyone's experienced it, but they've not come back to talk about it. Yes, mostly don't, they don't, or some do, but in any event, that's for a different evening. And now if I go to your servant, my father, and the lad whose whole being is bound up in his is not with us, and he sees that the lad is not there, he'll die. And your servants will have lowered your servant, your father's gray-headed anguish to Sheol. For your servant made himself responsible for the lad, saying, if I don't bring him back to you, I will stand guilty before my father for all time. So please let your servant remain as my Lord's slave in place of the lad, and let the lad go home with his brothers. For how can I go home to my father without the lad, and thus see the harm my father will suffer? So, here is the 
Imagine how the writer of this story, this Joseph story, who obviously plotted it all out. Those of you, some of you in the room, write novels, so you know how you get from when the beginning to the end. We're coming to, in a sense, the end of this Joseph brother story that started with back way back there with Judah saying, I'm, let's sell him into slavery, and ending right here, right now, with that very same Judah now offering himself as a slave to the same brother that he sold into slavery without knowing it. So that the circle is now complete. And the moment the circle is complete and Joseph sees what that same Judah is now willing to do, then the emotional moment of the story with the tears happens. Joseph could no longer restrain himself before all who were standing in attendance on him. So he cried, remember, they didn't recognize him. How come his brothers didn't recognize him? Apart from the fact that it was 22 years later. And he was costumed. He didn't look like the shepherd kid. He was speaking Egyptian. He was speaking Egyptian. He was dressed, he was like the prime minister of Egypt. He spoke Egyptian, he looked Egyptian, he was dressed Egyptian, he was all of the things, everything that was the anti-little shepherd boy running around, you know, talking about my dreams. Joseph couldn't stand it anymore, so he cried, send everyone away from me, so that no one was there when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He gave voice to a loud wail. So loud that everybody in the palace heard him. The Egyptians heard. Pharaoh's palace heard. Joseph then said to his brothers, Ani Yosef, Odavihai, I am Joseph. Is my father alive? Shockingly, his brothers were unable to answer him. In fact, they recoiled in fear of him. Joseph, why were they afraid? That he'll retaliate. I know, it's obvious. Yeah. The kid they sold into slavery and probably presumed he was dead. You know, who knew? Years later, suddenly is the guy, is the man. So, of course, they were, and has all the power in the world, but they were terrified, shocked, confused, I mean, you can only imagine, really. Imagine yourself in their place. What would you be thinking? Go. You know, just the confusion alone of, wait a minute. What what, what do you mean, I am Joseph? So, a little aside. Yes. So then he spoke to them in, that's why he sent everyone out. Yeah. All the Egyptians out of the room. Would he have been spoke, speaking Hebrew? He would have been speaking, yes, he would have been speaking Hebrew. Yeah. Yes. Not one of the other languages? No, Hebrew. Okay. And Yosef. Some of you may remember, it was October 1960. Some of you may remember Pope John the 23rd. Pope John XXIII was best known in the Jewish world as, uh, in in a positive sense, he was the one that uh, was responsible for, um, oh, the Latin suddenly went out of my head. 
Nostra Aetate. The yeah, right. The Jesus didn't kill Jesus. Yeah, yes, he was the one who said, "No, it wasn't the Jews who killed Jesus. After all, we were just kidding all this time." Um, right in the '60s, where where he was the one responsible for this fundamental shift in the Catholic Church to um, reach out to the Jewish community and uh, and attempt at. Um, softening, if not erasing, the built-in anti-Semitism, anti-Jewishness of Catholicism. Um, well, you know, sort of like emotional reparations. Yeah, that kind of thing. And the way he began that process was he had a meeting with all with Jewish leaders at the time, and uh, he said he opened and began his plea, really, it was a very humble plea for forgiveness of the Jewish people. Um, it was remarkable, really, at the time, um, for all of the, you know, crusades and all those things, all those inquisitions and crusades and all that stuff that was happening. But he began... Although the crusades weren't about the Jews, the crusades were about the Muslims. Yeah. Yeah. But we were just incidental victims. We were the, uh, what, do you, what, what do you call that? Collateral, collateral damage. damage. Thank you. We were the collateral damage. In any event, <clears throat> he began that historic moment, that speech, by saying, Ani Yosef, Ha'od Avichai. I am Yosef, quoting this, because his baptismal name was Joseph. So he, this is how he began that, with this Moment, because it's the most emotional reconciliation moment in the entire Torah. So we gathered all these leaders, and he said, "I need Yosef." You know, it's like uh, an attempt at, at connecting with the with the Torah's power of reconciliation and forgiveness. Because this is all about, you know, this is a story about how hard forgiveness is. Not necessarily. It seems like Joseph doesn't have any problem. He's not the one with the problem. It's all the brothers who were guilty who had problem with their own forgiveness, forgiving themselves, dealing with their own guilt, their own shame, both of those things in this process. It's, they were the ones who for, forever, to the very end, didn't trust him, didn't believe him because they carried that, that guilt. Yeah, Carol. Do we know what prompted the Pope We probably do, but I don't. <laughs> And do we know how the this is when you need Bemparad. See, that was his strength. That's what he knew. Do we know how the Jewish leaders of the time reacted to that? Oh, well, it was, yeah, they reacted like the brothers here. Uh, 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 thank you. Yeah, it was, you know, the same way you reacted when I was just talking about it, basically. Yeah, yeah but... Yeah, you know, I mean, it was an amazing thing. It's been, I mean, it's like an amazing thing, yeah. Maybe the point is that he shouldn't have spoken to the Jewish leaders, but should have talked to his parish priests. Because <laughs> their reasoning yeah. is... Yes, well, that's, that, that's an ongoing, yeah, and that's an ongoing issue. Yes, you know. Did anyone see Two Popes, by the way, the movie? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. If you haven't seen it, if you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix. It's like... Wow. Jonathan Price is just fabulous. The two of them are amazing. It's like incredible, incredible movie. But it's also, you know, you get a sense of 
you know, you can how the the challenges of leadership, and um, anyway, I won't go into it. Yeah. I think it's really amazing. The first thing Joseph says after he says, "I am Joseph," or actually, what he doesn't say. He could have said, "I am Joseph. Why did you do that?" Yes. He could have said, "I am Joseph," and gone back to the whole thing. And he says, I and am I'm going to get you. Oh, no, he could have right, said he that. He says, too. I am Joseph. Is my father okay? Yeah, still wants the father. Is my father okay? Which is a real family, structural kind of a thing to say. Yes. Well, that's what this is about. So Joseph went on, let's do it, and said to his brothers, Come, draw near to me. So they drew near. What else were they going to do? He said, <laughs> Again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you, saw, whom you sold to Egypt. Remember that? And now, really it's but. This is where the but comes in as much as the and, even though we're not supposed to say but all the time. But don't be troubled. Don't be chagrined because you sold me here. For it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. So is this Joseph speaking out of forgiveness or megalomania? What do you think? I mean, I mean, I think he's still deluded that he's, you know, I mean, he's been very lucky and he's ended up where he's ended up. Yeah. And he's created a narrative for himself that says that basically all this bad stuff that happened to him. I am God's servant. Purpose. I am God's voice. Right. It yeah. The best. But there's also the theme that runs through this whole thing that in the back of all this history is God kind of pulling the strings. Which is a theme that goes all the way through here. It goes through Exodus and whatever. That behind all of history is a moral, ethical God. Yes. Which is a different type thing. Yeah. Okay, so it's a great question. How, how does Joseph see himself? In charge. charge. He's in charge. He has see- the power now. No, on assignment. On assignment. Yes. <laughs> Temporary assignment. You know, he's like, God sent me, yeah. you know. I mean, I mean that, he has to say that several times, you notice, over and over again to them because they, they're not quite buying it. You know, they're waiting for the axe to fall, for the guillotine literally to fall. They're waiting for the, the obvious retribution that you would expect because why wouldn't we expect it? You know, it's like here he has all the power and here we are groveling at his feet and we sold him into slavery, for God's sake. It's our brother, our own brother, you know. And they know what they did. They know, they know they've lived with it all this time. Every time something bad happens, basically, they're saying, retribution, we're being punished. Just, justifiably, we're being punished. What were we thinking? Sold our brother into slavery. Look what it did to dad. Look what it did to us. Look what it did to that. Everything is like, that's the lens through which they see the world through their actions, their experiences. Is there any other way? How else do we see the world except for through our own actions and our own behaviors? Joseph's way. Ah, there's another way to see the world. Ah, we aren't destined to always have to see the world the same way, through the same lens all the time. If we keep looking through the same glasses, we'll probably see the world the same way. <clears throat> and the brothers have done nothing with their guilt. 
to change things. Mm. But Joseph has grown in the process. Except so, if he really loved his father so much, he hadn't communicated with his father. So He had a way to do that, <clears throat> ostensibly, as the number two guy. So that's another question. <laughs> Speaking of Why Joseph and his... Uh, possible arrogance here. <clears throat> His megalomania, you don't call, you don't write, you know. So, um, if he really cared about his father, he would have told his father he was alive. You know, I was in therapy yesterday, and I'm talking about my mother, and uh, actually, I'm talking about myself, and, you know, talking about how, how is it that if my mother asks me, my mother lives in Sacramento, if my mother asks me, uh, when are you coming up? I take it as a judgment. <laughs> she just asked, when are you Jewish? coming up? <laughs> it's a perfectly reasonable question. When are you coming up? And it's like, the way I hear it is like, not when are you coming up? Why aren't you here? Well, you know, it's like, you there's a mi- you don't come oh, up man. enough. It's like, she didn't say any of that. She just said, when are you coming up? It's like, you know, it's like, these buttons that you push and then the tape runs in your mind well who put that tape in there you did she didn't put that tape in there yeah, I put that tape in there so like why don't I yeah I know <laughs> so but it's too easy to say she put it in there okay maybe when I was a little kid things happened whatever I'm 70 years old I'm 71 Uh how about if I erase that tape? How about if I put another tape in there? We don't have tapes anymore. It's like, it shows you how old I am. Um, right? I'm going to download a different, another song that's going to have a different song. It's like, wow, I'm so excited. Whenever you come. I just love seeing you whenever you come. What's wrong with that message? That's actually her message, by the way. That is her message. The tape really is... I love to see you anytime you're here. I miss you. I miss you. I'm excited to have, whenever it's going to be. You know, I'm up there. I don't know every six weeks or so. I make sure to get go there for one thing or another. You know, my parents are 98 and 97, so I should probably see them. <laughs> that kind of thing. It's like who decided it was one tape or, or the other tape? I decided, and I keep deciding. How come I see the world through this lens or that lens? I I choose that. You know. I am the master of, the interpreter of, the story of my life. I'm it. It's my story. Joseph is interpreting his story, which is also their story in part, through his own lens. He's got a much better version, frankly, than their version. Their version is they ought to be in jail. They ought to be in prison. They ought to be a million. They ought to be maybe killed. You know, after all, that's their version. His version is... Don't sweat it. Look. Look where I ended up. Obviously, it was for a reason. You know, God, this is a part of a plan. This a bigger plan than you and me. I mean, don't forget, all along, even when Pharaoh said, interpret my dreams, he said, I, it's not me. I can't interpret them. God, God will interpret them. You know, I'm just a mouthpiece. I'm just like, I'm just a channel. First of all, I don't know, you know, everybody creates things. You know, we all create. We all have creativity in us. People do it in different ways, different versions of creativity. Uh, one of the things I do is write songs sometimes. I write music. Um, sometimes I actually write it down so it will exist longer than the 
minute in which I wrote it. Sometimes they don't. You know, we have a nice, beautiful piano in our house. Often I'll walk by and just sit down and play something, whatever it is, that just falls out of my fingers, and then that'll be it, and I'll walk away. Um, I think I mentioned this before. Sometimes Dee Dee will hear that and go, did you record that? No, I just, you know... There it came, it went, it's gone, it's whatever, whatever that melody showed up. But I never feel like I'm writing it. I don't sit down and think, I'm going to play C, then I'm going to play F, then I'm going to play G. I just sit down, and, and I'm not a brilliant composer, obviously, but something falls out of my fingers. Something goes through me, it's like channeling. And, you know, I never have the sense, I'm writing something. That's like, that would be like figuring something out. Sometimes I fix something or make it sound better than it first came out when I'm actually trying to write a song or something. But it's like one of those things. That's how creativity, everybody that's creative, all of us who are creative, the creativity it sort of flows through us. It's, it's like channeling. That's the way it works. People who paint, people who write, people who play, people who do whatever. You know, um, There's parts of it that you figure out you know, Ed writes novels. You know, and I know he figures out there's a story he's trying to write. But literally, when you're writing, it's either flowing or it's not flowing. It's not, you're not thinking, what's the next word? And then the next word, or you'd never write anything. It just either comes to you, you know, and then you go back and whatever. It's like, that's what happens. All of us. So, you know, yeah. We look at our, and also... This is the reality of everyone's life. Above all other things, in my humble opinion, we are meaning makers. That's how we live in the world, by, by telling our own version of our lives and our story, and then retelling it, and then looking back and making a new version of it. You know, I, I, have, I actually believe it's never too late to have a happy childhood. <laughs> yeah. Some people I'm sorry. That, some people call that force God. Many people call that force God. Uh, Joseph is calling that force God here. It's exactly what Joseph is doing. That something that I allowed me to figure out the right thing to say, to be cute and adorable and smart and clever and charming, which Joseph clearly was, to have people like me, to figure out how to, you know whatever, to interpret dreams, to come up with a good idea. It wasn't me, you know. And yeah, I know you, and he says literally, you sought to do harm, but God used it for good. Everybody, that's the story that I end up writing in my brilliant commentary from my fabulous book, (laughs) A Year of Mordecai Kaplan. Um, In any event, because that's how we started. You know, I look at my own life, and, and it's just a metaphor for what everybody does or example of what everybody does. I look at my life. I look at, you know, when I was 16 and my parents decided to move to Sacramento and I was just finishing 10th grade and, like, I was a hotshot and I was playing drums in the Hollywood Bowl, you know, with the Santa Juan Serenaders and it was, like, the coolest thing. And the next day, I, sorry, throw in the car and drive up to Sacramento to move in the middle of my high school. It's like not really the best thought in my mind that this is really going to be good. You know, it's like, it sucked. It was like horrible. It turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. 
along with all the other things that turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. Like, you know, I wasn't working at Temple Judea, and they were, and I tried to get hired as the senior rabbi, and they said no, and then I applied at Avat Shalom, and, you know, I've told the story a million times, and how could they not hire me? I'm really good. I'm talented. I'm whatever. Of course they're going to hire me, and, and didn't hire me. Didn't want me. You know? I ended up at KI. Best thing ever happened to me. Thank you to your husband yeah, yes. and everybody else who was on the search committee. You know, it's like I ended up here, right? So for me, that was like, I look back and go, I could say, you see, I thought it was going to be that I should be in Northridge, but God <laughs> wanted me in Pacific Palisades. <laughs> Whatever, you go back and you make meaning out of the things that happened to you, and everybody that I've ever spoken with in my life has similar stories. Every single person I know has some version of, mm-hmm. I thought this was a, the curse and it turned out to be the blessing. Right. We have the opposite also. I thought this was the blessing, it turned out to be the curse. I l- fell in love with this person, he turned out to be an abuser. I fell in love with, and I like, would anything to stay away from that, and I ended up with, oh look, mm-hmm. <laughs> the love of my life, whatever. You know, I got fired from my job. I was devastated. I ended up in the career that I never would have imagined doing, traveling. Who knows what? Everybody's got a million stories. Everybody has versions of that because that's where life is. That's the, that's the heartbeat of life, up and down. And you, you don't know where it's going. You don't know what's happening. But we are meaning makers, so we look back and we decide what the story means to us. We just can't live without things meaning something. Joseph's version of meaning is this is for a reason I ended up here not just out of my own hubris which I have and my own sense of glorification and power which I also have you know but so I could rescue my own family that's why I'm here that's his rewriting of history that's his writing of history I don't know it's rewriting that's his writing of history it's actually rewriting because what happened was his his brothers were jealous of him. Father didn't love him. This is the re- what's the real story? Dad didn't love us. Dad loved you more. Gave you a coat of many colors. Blah blah blah. And we wanted to get rid of you, so we'd love us. That's the story. Yeah, yeah. It's most interesting to me about this whole story is that they all blame Joseph. And they never look at Jacob and say, "Wait a minute, how come he he didn't do the kid didn't do anything?" Right. He didn't do it. He's a baby. It's not his fault. His father his gave father, him a gift and loved him more. And, and made a spectacle of him. So nobody gets pissed off at Jake. And it wasn't even about Joseph. It wasn't even about... It was about Rachel, by the way. It wasn't about Joseph. Joseph was because Rachel died. So now i got to give it all to my her sons, right? Because she's gone. So I go to the next best thing, really, which is... My, the son of her. It was all about that love. Yeah. Isn't isn't uh, just the rationale that he gives to his brothers that that this is part of God's plan so that He could save the family? Isn't this kind of an after the fact justification? Given the fact that had the brothers not shown up, do we really believe that sometime during the next five years of the family he would have thought to himself, "Oh, maybe I should uh, look up what's been going on with my family"? Hey, I'm with you. I'm back with where I was going to go, where Bert also, Bert's question was the other side of that question. What do you mean? Does my father still live? Where you been? 
For the last nine years, you have been the prime minister of the most important, powerful country right next door. You've been living right next door to Canaan, where your father and your brothers are starving or living or thriving or doing whatever. Who knows what they're doing there? You have all the power in the world. You could have very easily sent a little emissary on a little trip. Could you go over there? What? He was really dealing with his own ego because that might jeopardize his position. I can see lots of yeah. I think you're probably very. You can make that story up easily, hundred percent. That here he was, you know. It's like I mean, I bring up Esther and and often in the, as a parallel story of Esther and Hashverosh, and you know, yes, she's the queen, but you, you know, there's rules. You don't, you don't, you got to have guts to go talk to the king without being invited. He could go. You know, killed it. What are you talking about? You know, throw in the dungeon or whatever. So yeah, maybe he's in a precarious. He's powerful but precarious. How secure really was he? And that's part of the drama of this story. Was he sent everybody out of the room as if he's going to have a personal, private one-on-one with so that they don't even hear him speaking Hebrew? But then he's so overcome with emotion. That he's going, ah, oh my God, you know, and they hear him. And Van Farrow shows up and goes, I heard you, some of your brothers are here, you know, and anything could have happened. Those shepherds that we hate, and don't forget, he then is going to tell them, don't forget, I'm going to come, you're going to, we're going to, I'm going to give you some land. Pharaoh's going to take care of you, but you got to tell them you're shepherds because they hate shepherds. So then they won't want to live with you, so they'll put you. And you give you your own little plot of land somewhere far away. Could have said, you know, who are you? That's who, that's who you are? And so it could very well have been some of that. Even so, if with all this profound emotion is my father living still and blah, 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 he, he never once, part of the complexity of life, part of the messiness of life, part of the messiness of families and relationships. When are you coming up to Sacramento? <laughs> you know, part, part of the, that's how I hear it. That wasn't, that's part of it. Why didn't he? Well, that's how we read ourselves into the story. Was it what? a secret that he was Hebrew? Didn't, didn't they? No, oh, no. No. What, like what, it wasn't, he was Hebrew. it wasn't a secret, but it, wasn't it also wasn't like he's going to like wear a Go Jews t-shirt every day. It was like, okay, now I'm one of you. You know, it's that interesting story of the Jewish people as a minority in a majority culture. How much do we push who we are versus how much do we fit in? How much were we all the entire 20, most of the 20th century excitedly declaring ourselves Protestants, Catholics, and Jews? Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. We were wearing robes. We rabbis were wearing robes that looked like everybody else's robes for years to try to fit in to look like them. We had services that looked like theirs. We had because we wanted to fit in because we didn't want to be what then happens when a new king arises and knows not Joseph who says there's this people who are like that we can't trust because they're not us. Oh, 
The whole world today is into, there's this people we can't trust. They're not us. They speak some other language. They're a little different colored skin. They're whatever. We're going to lock them up in cages at the border. We're not even let them cross the border. Whatever. Going to change all the rules. That's, hey, we got a new king who arose, a new not Joseph. That's, hello. How precarious is our position in, when you're a minority in every country, in every Stage in every era. I think we can say but, something. Yeah. Uh, if uh, Joseph became an Egyptian, yeah. did he also adopt a religion? Ah, very important. Good question. Here, don't forget what happened was <clears throat> when Pharaoh elevates Joseph last week, elevates Joseph to the prime minister. He changes his name. He gives him an Egyptian name. He gives him an Egyptian wife. He has Egyptian children. He becomes part of the culture, the country, the dress, the everything. I don't know about the religion because there's no way of knowing. But he clearly is now officially adopted as Egyptian. But he didn't go to church. <laughs> well, Pharaoh is church. Uh-huh. Don't forget. Okay. Pharaoh is God. Okay. So he was worshiping in church. Okay. Trust me. Because he's Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the god there. He, whatever he, he does. Pharaoh, Pharaoh is Pharaoh is divine. Yes. But you also have. Well, you had priests. You had all that other stuff. Yeah, you had all those other. You got lots of Egyptian gods, Ra, and all those other fun guys. But you know, the, the point is exactly that tension, that push pull between your own authentic identity and the mask you just put on, and the robe you got to wear, and you know, and the role that you're now playing, and. And here, he was playing that role. He wasn't going back, you know, let's go. I just want to point out to everybody, I really have a father and 11 <laughs> brothers who are schluppy shepherds over there in Canaan. No, he's like the guy running the show and being the Egyptian and having the Egyptian name that I can't even pronounce and, you know, marrying the daughter of an Egyptian priest. His wife is the daughter of an Egyptian priest. Yes, he goes to church. <laughs> the daughter of an Egyptian priest, he's got Egyptian kids, whatever, you know, that he gives Hebrew names for, but that's a whole different thing. Ephraim and Manasseh. In any event, it's this push-pull. That's, that's our story. There's a reason this story works. It's our story in every generation. He's a hyphenated Egyptian. Yes, he's an Egyptian <laughs> Hebrew. Yeah. And it's the very messiness of the story of all the non-straight lines that take us through this story that make it live for us today because we understand messiness. We have that in our own lives. If it were straightforward, it wouldn't have the same meaning. Yeah, it's like, this is life. Hello. You know, it would be a boring story if it was just like, what a, this is the reality of life, how you wrestle with the ambiguities and the contradictions of our lives and how you make some kind of sense out of it. You know, his sense was, huh, there have been two years of famine in the land, there's five more, God sent me ahead of you to assure your survival, to keep you alive for a great deliverance, which is going to come well, you can read that either. The great deliverance is, I'm saving you from starvation right now, or sometime in the future there's going to be a great deliverance, as in Moses, two portions from now. So it's not you who sent me here, but the God who made me a father to Pharaoh, a lord to all his household, a ruler of the whole land of Egypt. So go back to Dad and say, 
This says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt, come down to me, don't delay. You can settle in the land of Goshen and be near me. Um, in any event, that's what happens. So, um, there's one thing I want to tell you before we run out of time. Tell, you, oh, tell my father how they honor me. Oh, I love this. Verse 13. Tell my father how they honor me in Egypt and all that you've seen. Hurry up and go bring my father down here. It's that. that my mother's voice in my head. Tell me. We always want our parents' approval. The guy's the prime minister of the country, you know? His father's a poor shepherd somewhere in, you know, schlepper or shepherd in Canaan. Go tell daddy how they honor me in Egypt. It's like, I'd love that. <laughs> I love it. It's like, I'm a big deal. <laughs> I made it. So uh, time is up, but I want to just point out one, one sentence. It's uh, Genesis 47, verse 9. If you're in the green book, it's on page 272. They've come down. The Joseph's brothers and father have all come down. They're, they're getting this land. And Pharaoh comes to meet Joseph's t- Jacob and his father. And, um, and uh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many years have you lived? You know, how old are you? Just to remember that his... Um, that Abraham was 175 years old when he died and it says in the Torah and he breathed his last dying at a good ripe age old and contented was gathered to his kin Isaac was 180 and it says Isaac was 180 when he breathed his last and died gathered to his kin in ripe old age and the Pharaoh asks Jacob how old are you and Jacob says the span of the years of my lifetime has been 130 Few and miserable have been the days of the years of my life. Few and painful have been... He's had an amazing life, Jacob. He's 130. Few and miserable. How do we tell the story of our own life? Few and miserable? Old and... Contented? Is the cup half empty or half full? Exactly. You know, the lenses through which we see, the tapes we put in our head, the things that are we can want to substitute, the power that we have of determining our the value and the meaning of our lives, that's what this story is also about. One of the themes of this story is, are you going to choose Joseph's version, Jacob's version, or his brother's version? of what life means and to realize oh the Torah says I put before you good and evil blessing and curse life and death and then it says therefore choose just choose life but choose the fact that we have the ability to choose the story that we're telling about ourselves and our relationships and our families and our lives that's the part we forget as if it's somehow out there it's all in here the dream of our lives is our own making